You know, what's a great question. How much does this really cost? Yeah. Oh, really? Good anytime one. that you see something, you guys mentioned this earlier. It's so important. Anytime you see something that's, that's quote cheap and that whole cost conversation, you know, when it, whether it's at the farmer's market, why is this tomato so expensive? Especially when something's cheap, you know, we should be asking ourselves, how much does this really cost? And I think we're starting to understand that because there are people doing great work around this kind of notion of real cost accounting when it comes to our food system. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. We are now back after being away for a week, but it actually feels much longer, wouldn't you say, Emma? Yeah, it definitely feels like there's been a shift in the whole season, even since we were last here recording an intro just two weeks ago. I'm getting that very nostalgic back to school feeling that comes at this time of year. It's right when my mother would have taken me to get a new pair of saddle oxfords for the school year. And I would have been thinking about my first day of school outfit. What do you remember about those last days of summer vacation when you were little? You love school so much. Do you remember being excited about it? Yeah, I remember being most concerned about who my teacher was going to be or whose class I was going to be in and then which of my friends was going to be in my class. And if I was going to have any friends in my class, that was almost a stressful time. Because what if you didn't have any friends in your class? <laughs> but it was all also really exciting. Yeah, we used to get this little postcard in the mail on the Friday before school started the day after Labor Day on Tuesday. And it told you your teacher. So we would immediately get on the phone and start running around the neighborhood to see who was in your class. And sometimes you were really happy. And sometimes you were really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you had no control over it. Right. It just so sad. <laughs> it just was foretold to you. <laughs> well, even if we aren't going back to school, so to speak, we are excited about all the things we've got coming up over here at Lady Farmer. If you follow us, you might have seen that tickets are now available for our annual slow living retreat again online. It's going to be on December 3rd and 4th, which is moving straight into the holiday season, which in our culture is typically anything but slow living. So this year, our theme for this gathering is embracing winter yeah so we've got yoga workshops as always the lady farmer coffee chat so a session with you and i just sitting and chatting about well we'll have like a little plan talk and then we'll have some questions time to get to know each other better and we have a happy hour so plenty of social time to meet other lady farmers we'll have some live music surprises and yeah all kinds of treats for this retreat 
So full details are where? On the website, ladyfarmer.com. We have a full retreat section on the website. And we need to tell them about the Almanac and what's going on there. Yeah, so we will have enrollment is opening again for the fall. We've had a wonderful summer season. We're so excited about everything going on there. And also, you know, kind of sad to wrap up summer as always, but we'll be opening again in the fall to a new cohort of lady farmers. Yeah, and we're really excited about our community-wide activity that's happening inside the Almanac this month. Members will be preparing a special locally sourced zero waste meal for a small gathering, and that could be family, friends, or whoever, or maybe even just for themselves. So yeah, the idea is just to celebrate the season for no real reason other than to celebrate the season and to be outside and to have an intentional shared experience that you put time and attention and love into it. Yeah, and within the Almanac, we'll be sharing our ideas and recipes, our thoughts and photos and all of that as a way of supporting and encouraging each other to really immerse ourselves in the season and all of its offerings of food and harvest. And that leads us straight into the topic of today's episode and our guests. Yes, today we have Dan Miller, the founder and CEO of Steward, a private lending organization that works with regenerative farmers, ranchers, fishermen, and producers to provide the capital that they need to expand and sustain their businesses. So, really amazing and recently they brought on Spike Jurdy of Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore. He is a amazing celebrity chef around here. We're so proud of him in the DMV area. You might have heard of him outside our region as well. If you remember the restaurant A Rake's Progress that opened in the Line Hotel in DC a couple of years ago, that was his beautiful brainchild and the Obamas dined there and it's just legendary and Spike is legendary. So we're so excited to have him on the show along with Dan. We learned so much from them. Yes. And as Lady Farmer and especially here on the Good Dirt podcast, we are committed to spreading the word about regenerative agriculture, which is actually a multifaceted concept that includes numerous philosophies, methods, and even interpretations. But the bottom line, I think, is that it's a growing movement that shows us a way to recover so much of what's been lost in recent decades, which is the access to clean, nutrient-dense, locally sourced foods that do not rely on fossil fuels for production or distribution that supports and protects the vitality of our soil and our individual and public health and that supports the small regional farms that are essential to this reclamation of this most basic human need which is our food yeah and the most urgent need for the growth and survival of these farmers that are working so hard to make all of this happen is surprise capital. And that's exactly what Dan and Spike are here to talk about today. And this amazing lending model that they've created, how it works, how it has succeeded, and how we can all join in to support this important movement beyond just shopping locally, going to our farmers markets and knowing our farmers. Those are all amazing ways to do this and the best ways and we should all be doing that anyways. But with something like Steward in place where we can really participate at a really groundbreaking and paradigm shifting level is super exciting. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, sit back and have a listen and we'll see you later. My 
My name is Dan Miller. I'm the founder of Steward. It's a platform that enables people to fund regenerative agriculture. Access to capital, obviously, is one of the huge problems for regenerative agriculture. So our goal is to help solve that. My connection to, to agriculture comes, I would say, two ways. My mother's family has been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the late 1800s. And as part of my work with Stuart, I've gone back and actually, you know, found and verified the history and the ships they came across and the kind of German farming community they were part of at that time. And so we spent a lot of time out in Chesapeake Bay. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in a city. You know, my mom left the farm. That was pretty much the, the trend in that era. And, but we spent a lot of time out there. And you would just learn about the depletion of the bay and the kind of dredging of the oyster reefs and the water that you could no longer see through. And so the ecological deterioration is clear. But I would see every farm planted fully with beautiful long rows of corn and, and everything else. And so I never quite understood how you could have a region that's struggling economically and doesn't have very much fresh food and is depleting its natural resources. But from the appearance, it seems like they're planting things and they're growing things and, and the ag market is functioning. And then I met Spike in 2010 or something and had been familiar with Woodbury Kitchen, which is a fantastic restaurant that anybody in the Maryland region or broadly should go to if they haven't. But I started to meet some of the farmers that he was sourcing from. And so, you know, you're, you're hearing the stories of these farmers, the amazing products they're selling, the, the demand for people to buy these products and be a part of it. But none of these farmers had access to capital. And that just, it was surprising to me because the consumer demand has exploded. That's clear to anybody, but that's not actually led to more funding for the farms. So if they want to buy land, equipment, infrastructure, they're still in the same USDA driven market they would have been a few decades ago. And so kind of the world has evolved very rapidly around consumer demand for agricultural products, but the funding system is effectively unchanged. And so the goal with Steward was to allow those people that are leading the food movement that are putting their dollars towards local food to actually provide funding to the farms to help them grow connect the dots between producer and consumer and also deepen the links in, in the broader agricultural economy. The reality is that these farms are viable enterprises and can do a lot of great things with financing, but you can only take it so far. So the goal is not only to bring capital to farms, but help them be successful because you need regenerative agriculture to actually be viable economically to sustain itself and grow. But we are seeing opportunities there. Yay. Awesome. Yeah, so exciting. <laughs> I have so many things to comment, but Spike, you go ahead. So a couple of years before I first met Dan, my restaurant career had kind of taken a turn. I was previously working with my brother in a, in a number of restaurants here in Baltimore, and our partnership was kind of ending. And one of the reasons was I was really becoming interested in, in sourcing from local farms. And I wanted to start a restaurant that was basically about that. And he didn't, <laughs> which is fine. We started Woodbury Kitchen in 2007 with this kind of more of a question than a concept, I think, which was like, what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to feed ourselves? What's the best way to participate in a food system? And over the course of the next few years, we started answering those questions. One of the answers that we landed on was we need to get more money back to growers. Like the growers that I knew were doing amazing things. A lot of them were just getting started. Some of them have started and have continued over the course of Woodbury's existence now going on 15 years. I think in a relatively short amount of time, recognized that part of our quote job was to like return value to growers. And we started to kind of shape the restaurant, what we served how we kind of wrote the menu, what we served from the bar based on what we thought could get the most value back to growers. That started to mean like we even were excluding things from our menu that didn't do that. We stopped serving citrus kind of famously because obviously there are no lemons grown in this region in, in Maryland, but there are plenty of other sources of acidity and sourness for our cooking and for our beverages. And so we kind of approached it like that. And we just like any way that we could find to um, support growers and we, we came to realize that economic support was the main thing that we could do. You know, you can Instagram or, you know, post to high heaven, 
But ultimately, growers need to pay their bills. And as Dan said, these businesses can be viable when they find the right support. And the products are, are second to none. The work ethic is second to none. And I just felt like our role could be like cash flow. And we not only kind of shaped the business of Woodbury around that realization, but we created businesses to um, continue that or to expand upon that. So our, our little coffee shop artifact is built on the same model. Uh, we started preserving and canning because our needs as a year-round restaurant didn't exactly overlay with the growing seasons here. It doesn't take a, a genius to understand that preserving is going to be part of the approach if you're really serious about sourcing locally in a, in a seasonal region like we are here. And so the one thing that I was hearing from growers over and over again is kind of what Dan referred to is like, as much as we could do around cash flow, the other thing that most businesses will need at some point is capital to either expand or to become more efficient. In the case of growers, that might mean mechanization. Uh, it might mean things like walk-ins or buildings and things like that. And that was something I couldn't really help with. That was, you know, our focus was on running the restaurants and buying as much as we could, but I was neither a, a lender nor did I have the wherewithal to address that very clear need. And so along comes Steward, which is doing exactly that. And one of the things that's most special about Steward is that it is focused on the needs of these growers. There is a huge structure and framework and uh, history of governments and banks being supportive of giant farms, of, of commodity farms, but little or few examples of the kind of work that Steward's doing that is directed and kind of, again, scaled and understanding of the realities of these more human scaled farms. It's incredible. Yeah. It's so, I'm, we're just thrilled. And I have so many things to comment on, but so I'm, I'm assuming you're, you, you were out loud about what you were doing with your customers. Like we don't have lemon for your drink because I mean, we're, this must've been, an, there must've been an educational component to this whole thing you were doing. Or was there? Or did they just figure it out? Or how did you be out loud about what you were doing? I would say an inevitable conversation at the table at Woodbury, because it wasn't just lemon, it was olive oil and it was salmon and it was olive and, and olive oil and so many things that, that people kind of take for granted. And I, I'm not anti any of this, really. I have you know a lot of questions about salmon farming, but I think the deliciousness of a, of a lemon is one of the most settled yeah. questions on the face of the, of the planet. It's insane how, especially if you haven't had one for a while, how delicious a lemon is. But those conversations were, I think, great conversations to have. And, you know, the fact that they were taking place in a restaurant was a little unusual, but that is Woodbury. And that helped, I think, a lot of people understand what was at stake. And I think there's a lot at stake. And I think when you flip the other side of when you say, well, let's take all the purchasing dollars and let's drive them through the local economy, just amazing how even small things like the butter on the table or the hot sauce, like they use those then become huge drivers of, of revenue. So it's, if you just think that there's no compromise, you then are be surprised the kind of extra effect of every local dollar, because people can do up to 50% and 60 and that's fine, but there's really a lot of extra ability. I mean, the virtue with the kind of citrus alternative, I found always fascinating that, you know, developing basically a new product line for local farms that otherwise doesn't exist, but could have much broader applications throughout the region if people followed the same methodology. It's amazing. It really seems the whole steward, the companies, to me, it seems like too good to be true, almost in like, duh. And like, how come this hasn't happened yet? So can you explain a little bit, maybe Dan, exactly how it works and maybe like some of the issues that the biggest issues you've run into, because I really it's really just like, I'm like, why isn't everyone doing this? 
Sure. Yeah, it, it hasn't happened because the regulatory and technical aspects of it are very complicated okay. and are designed to be so in the sense that there's a reason large money goes to large. It's mm -hmm. it's simple and, and easy. Mm -hmm. But the way Steward works is we have an entity that's a lender, Steward Lending. It provides a loan to the farmer and then users on our platform, customers of the farm, buy a piece of that loan. So basically loans we're making that people are buying pro rata shares, little as $100, you know, some people putting tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's really people who are aligned in values, regardless of what they're putting in, who buy into the story of the farmer, who want to see them grow and succeed, but also receive, you know, a reasonable return. Most deals are between six to 8%, and that fairly compensates the funder. So it's a completely alternative private market in the sense we have us individuals and the farmer, we come to the agreement on the deal and the terms, and we put it out to the broader market. We're not reliant on banks or third parties. And that's the only way this works, mm -hmm. that it's completely outside of the system and there's no sort of formal authorization around it because anytime you're working with banks and other uh, institutional providers, you're bound by their restrictions. And the restrictions are that they will just will not support this type of work. It's too high risk. It's too unknown. It's too small. It's everything they don't like. It's variable. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to create a technology and regulatory framework that can then work at small amounts. So that's, you know, significant capital of in technology development, regulatory development. But now each new project is fairly quick and fairly simple. And we're now raising, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for farms, whereas a year ago we were raising twenty five and fifty thousand. There's there's immense demand and interest. And I think people's reaction is what you said. Wow, what an opportunity to be able to actually support the types of farms I hope to. I should be able to do more of this and you should be able to do more of this. More of your money should be able to be put into the local economy easily. It's not mm -hmm. for many other reasons, but very overly burdensome regulation. So I find the farmer, the issue the farmer faces are the same issues in finance of just really heavy regulations that are built for large organizations and applying those at a small scale is very challenging, very costly, and it pushes people out of the market. And so, you know, we, we understand from the farmer's perspective, they just don't have time to go through complicated applications. They don't have time to do complicated and regulatory filings. Like it has to be simple to them that they provide basic information. They tell their story, they receive funding and then same for the funders. Like it's not realistic. The funders have to do underwriting of a deal and sourcing of farms and overseeing the projects, you know, they need to be able to support, but in a limited capacity. So I think both sides of the market would like to be more closely connected, but it does require a central kind of infrastructure, I think, to oversee and kind of keep the order in the broad base, you know, many to many business on both sides, many small to mid-sized farms and many small to mid-sized funders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many CSA farmers do we know that work so hard dawn to dusk and afterwards, and they're just working, working, working and trying to make it work all the time, trying to come out ahead. Some of them not, some of them quitting. We've known people very closely. They gave it up too much work and not enough return. And at the same time, you know, they go to farmers markets and so forth and people show up and say, gosh, you know, why is this cost so much? Why is it so expensive? And also something that's frustrated me in the past is this, the message like on social media and stuff, you should go to your farmer's market to support your local farmer. Almost like it's this quaint thing that, you know, we need to help them out by buying the tomatoes, even though they're a little, they're a little more expensive, that kind of thing. It's like, no, you need to support your local farmer because that is the food of the future. <laughs> that is our sustenance. And it's not like, well, I can always go to the store and get the things from California. That doesn't really matter. It does matter. It matters in a really huge way. So one of the 
incredibly encouraging things about what we're talking about in your organization is you're giving these farms real lift. You're really, really putting wind under their wings. And it's not just helping them keep their head above water. It is lifting them up to make the infrastructure changes and the process changes that that they really be able to join this movement in a big way. That's important to all of us. And to get them to viability. And that's, that's, the part is they've never had access to funding, so they can't even yeah. kind of envision what that may look like. Like they never, ever have any labor at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they barely have the right equipment or nothing at all. So, you know, then they get the funding. It's like, well, what, how can you get to viability? What type of revenue? What type of value-added products? Like what's the mix of business that you need? Um, and that's, we're still proving that out. We're still learning that. Farmers are still learning that. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's hard regardless, mm-hmm. but we're finding like direct sales and value-added products is where it seems to work well. And that that's how we try to guide farmers, you know, margin and removing the intermediary. So you do have this other aspect of the business that does help the farmer know what to do with the loan and how to organize themselves, or is that coming? Or It's become a part of the business because you just have yeah. to do it. So, you know, you can't just passively fund a farm and hope yeah. that five years down the road, it will be working. So it began with technical assistance from a, a team member who's a farmer himself who would, you know, vet the projects, but it would end up being less diligence and more like, well, where's your farm at? What do you really mm-hmm. need? You know, this piece of equipment's a nice to have, but it's not going to drive revenue. What about focusing on this business line instead of three business lines at once? So it becomes a bit of a business planning of like, let's do one thing much better. Let's scale one enterprise and give you the right infrastructure and labor to do that. And then over time, do more. And then it's also become, you know, well, I farmer wants to sell direct to consumer online. Yeah, that's hard for them. They don't know the technology. They don't know the infrastructure. So we're now providing marketing support, same with bookkeeping. So that, that's to our existing portfolio farms. It's just out of, I see, a requirement to make to help them be viable. But I think that is something that's important down the road of not only do they have the funding, but how can they leverage the skills and resources they need to be successful to actually cover you know, their costs have health insurance, you know, make a salary. Mm-hmm. None of them even dream of, of that, but that should be the standard. How can they have kind of comfort, you know, modest comfort, but some resilience in the business. And that is a big leap that they're taking. You know, these are farms that need a five-year sprint to kind of get there, but if they can have the right funding and the right markets and kind of grow their business, they should be able to, to arrive at that point where they can have a little bit more stability and reliability of funding. Yeah, it's probably a revelation for them to know that there's a way they can do more than just get by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the standard in, in, for a lot of these farms is they, they, <sighs> they have a farm and they work on the farm, but they also work another job. Right. Um, because the farm either break barely, you know, breaks even or, or loses money. Right. And a lot of the growers I know that haven't made it on one side and the ones that have over the years, the line that you could probably draw down that group is that some have figured out how to get financing. Some might, might have had personal resources. And others didn't. More often than not, the difference between making it and not was somehow having access to capital. And it took me, you know, I was just in there in the kitchen, you know, trying to buy as much as I could. But it's crystal clear to me now that this is as often as not the thing that that helps farmers or creates success for farmers or, you know, they end up giving it up. Yeah. And yeah. that happens quite frequently. Spike, can you explain what regenerative agriculture is to someone who might not have any idea what we're talking about? Yeah, I think it's great that Stuart is focused, has made this kind of a standard. Or It means different things in different contexts. But I was thinking about this before we went on, because I think it's such an important point. You know, the word sustainable has a lot of, it's used a lot. And I think regenerative is a great contrast is to sustainable. The part of the benefit of regenerative is it's not defined by a set standard. It's not right. organic, which means just this. And the problem is set standards very quickly become co-opted and 
tend to be abused to, again, larger organizations that figure out exactly how to, to manipulate the rules. I, I find regenerative is, is focusing on, you know, sustaining resources, soil, like you're focusing on taking care of the land first and foremost, and taking care of the land leads to good products and the output is good. So right now, agriculture is how do we scale up an output with synthetic inputs versus how do we treat the land as well as possible and are the employees who work there and produce the most nutritious, high quality products. And it goes beyond, you know, food too. It's it's in forestry and other methods. But I think it's, it's you know, why, why it so closely maps indigenous cultures. It's, you know, that what's more important than taking care of the land and your resources. And if you're doing that, then the downstream effects are you have sustenance and you have shelter and you have basic raw materials. Um, when it comes to like specific farming practices, that, that team member I mentioned who runs our farm diligence team, like he's then speaking with the farmer about exactly what their rotation is or how are they doing this. We're certainly not supporting farmers who are spraying any synthetic chemicals. We're certainly, but it's not that it has to be only draft power horses. <laughs> There's a balance between the two. One way to kind of boil it down is organic, for example, focuses on a, on a, a list of practices accepted and banned. And regenerative, I think, more broadly focuses on outcomes. It's like, mm -hmm. are we going to have a clean Chesapeake Bay, for example? Are we going to have, you know, a viable Chesapeake Bay? The way that the crab fishery is managed in the Chesapeake Bay is sustainable, supposedly, in that the catch is monitored, other biological kind of assessments are made, and they, they kind of assign a number of crabs that can be taken out of the bay. And they hope that we can continue to do that. That's a sustainable practice. I would say that growing oysters in the Chesapeake Bay is a regenerative practice. It's going to contribute to the water quality of the bay. It's going to provide habitat for other animals to live and thrive. And it's going to be, and it can grow. And no matter how much it grows, it's always going to have those benefits. And it's going to produce better outcomes. And I think you can kind of apply that thinking across the board, again, to almost all of the way that our food is produced, but also in, in so many other ways. And I think it's organic can only be like, that only applies to, I think, a relatively narrow band of what we eat and, and how we live. But regenerative, I think really, if you're thinking about it and you're serious about it, it makes sense for almost everything that we do. Yeah, and I think the net positive, like symbiotic relationship is a huge part of it. You know, if you do more of something, is the output better? And is there more improvement made? And that's like the exact opposite of our current agricultural mm -hmm. system. You know, you're just depleting yeah. as you go. And then that's why you're putting in synthetics because you've just depleted the resource. So oysters are, are one that's always been the most powerful for me of like that. They're there to filter the water and provide habitat and provide a source of nutrient and protein. Like they should be everywhere. Everything should be about supporting that industry and supporting the growth of oyster farms and supporting wild habitat. But it's still has taken a long time for that to be acknowledged and that to be done. And it's behind where it should be. But I, I think ecological restoration is the net result of good land management practices. And regenerative is trying to encompass, well, what are those land management practices? And aside from the land, what are the kind of benefits around, you know, local food distance in terms of transportation and wages to farmers and accessibility of food. So I also view regenerative as the business, the entirety of regenerative. If you're growing a regenerative product and then you're flying it across the whole country, it kind of undermines a lot of the purpose. And so I think you can't look at it too small in just a route of farming practices. You know, what are they paying their staff? That also matters in making sure that it's fair for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of awareness about where things come from and, you know, how they got to be in your hands. And and what questions to ask, too, like awareness yeah. of like, yeah, even what to. Because we take so many things for granted or just 
We don't think we have to don't think about ask. them. Yeah. Don't ask. You know, what's a great question. How much does this really cost? Yeah. Oh, really? A- anytime that you see something, you guys mentioned this earlier and I just, because it, it's so, it's so important. It's anytime you see something that's, that's quote cheap and that, that whole cost cost conversation, you know, when it, whether it's at the farmer's market, why is this tomato so expensive? Especially when something's cheap. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we should be asking ourselves, how much does this really cost? And I think we're starting to understand that because there are people doing great work around this kind of notion of real cost accounting when it comes to our food system. And I'm starting to see numbers that are like, you know, for the trillion dollars that we spend on, you know, in our food system every year in this country, we're probably costing ourselves around two trillion. If we can put a number on the environmental cost of how we grow and process and our food, if we can put a number on the health costs of what it costs us when we eat this food. We, we're starting to understand, like it, before it was kind of an abstraction. It's like, oh, you know, this cheap food is, it, there's a cost associated with it that's, that's externalized onto our health system and onto our environment. And now we're starting to understand it's, we can put dollars on it and it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we started out with Lady Farmer as an, a sustainable apparel brand. And we produce a line of clothing and um, have since supported other sustainable brands by selling their things on our website. And we frequently get the question, why would I pay $200 for a dress when I can go and get one for $20? And um, the answer to that question is, and I've said this before on here many times, if you're a regular listener, that dress did not cost $20. <laughs> and when you are choosing to buy something for the least cost that you can find, then you're supporting a system that keeps many, many people down the line, people, environment, whatever, down. That is not regenerative. That is not sustainable. That is degenerative. So, you know, we've been talking about the term regenerative, teaching people to think in those terms. We were just talking about this on a podcast, the one that's coming up this week. In fact, like if we can direct our consumer decisions on just that, what is going to regenerate life? What is going to help whatever this is, a food or a piece of clothing or um, a beauty product or a cleaning product or whatever? What is going to be something that will help the next generation thrive and grow and not take away from it? Yeah. Fast fashion is as bad as fast food. I mean, they're they're very, very, a lot of the same, you know, super high waste. um, Yeah. There's there's a lot of questions in the labor mm-hmm. model that that happens mm-hmm. across the board and hundred percent yeah and we've been trying to like you know we've been talking about that for the five years since we began it's it's very much the same trajectory the food the awareness on the food is is a bit ahead of it I'd say like maybe ten years but it's the same economic you know system that creates it and yes. so it's the same in every industry it's extractive and the country was founded on extraction yeah. basically. So, you know, it's just impermeated yeah, exactly. everything. It takes a lot of effort to go outside of that. But yes, if you do ask for full traceability, if you don't know where it came from, it's worse than you think. And generally that traceability yeah. ends very fast. You know, you can't even get, you can't even get yeah. two to three steps from where it actually, the source was. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So how do you think then that um, we can make these ideas more accessible? Because they are sort of spike. It encourages me to hear you say that you think people are more understanding of it. Um, I'm curious as to why you think that. But also for people who it is sort of a cerebral concept in many ways. And it takes a lot of thinking and lots of hoops and lots of questions to ask that 
takes a certain amount of education and awareness and knowledge and all of these things in many ways are inaccessible to a lot of people. So how do you guys think we can make this a more accessible area? More palatable too. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to convince people to pay more for things. It just is. Wow. There are so many challenges to the, when we say this in this question, what do you mean? What is the, this like to make this more regenerative? and regenerative, let's let's call it regenerative agriculture, like changing someone's buying habits, basically, and what they're like gonna care a regenerative about regenerative mindset. Yeah, to your consumer choices. Yeah, I'll say what's worked really well for me is twin forces. One that I was drawn to, and that's much more positive, and that is what you see, taste, feel, hear, smell when you go to a like a farmer's market. You know, you hear and experience, you feel the community, you feel that, that, you know, you feel like you're in a place with other people and it feels really, really positive and great. And of course, then you're tasting and smelling delicious, fresh food that's been cared for from the second it went in the ground. And so I, I was drawn to that. I think I was so drawn to that, that I started a restaurant that was basically trying to express how great that whole world is and how, how great it is to be a part of that world. And I didn't really have a, even, a, I wasn't able to articulate why I was so drawn to it. I just was. And I think anyone that goes to a farmer's market, is a, participates in a CSA, goes and visits a farm in their neighborhood, whether they're in a city like Baltimore, which has incredible farms all, all, all across the city. We have amazing urban farms. And then you go out into the countryside. And if you know where to look, you can find incredible human-scaled farms in, in Baltimore County and, and across the state. And so to allow yourself to kind of be drawn to that, go to an orchard in the fall and pick apples and have some cider and just participate in what's going on around you. And you'll be drawn into that. And I think one thing will lead to another uh, and you'll go from farm to farm, from, to, from product to product. You'll be overtaken by how wonderful it is. And, if, you know, for, as a chef, flavor is, is very high on that list for me because the produce that we get, for example, is, is like I said earlier, second to none. The other thing is, is an awareness thing. And it's as soon as you kind of, start to understand what's really happening. The vast majority of our food now comes from giant corporations. And it's not just one corporation. You know, it's not like that I'm just buying food at Walmart or McDonald's in a given moment. It's that that whatever that food product is, it started, you know, actually before it was ever planted or even thought about. It was a giant corporation that was probably providing the seed and the pesticides and the fertilizer. And then that entire chain that goes from a lot of times mega farms that are growing it and then processors of giant multi-billion dollar corporations that are turning it into food um, or moving it around or ultimately retailing it to us. It's just, there's never a moment where our food is now is out of those hands. And when you find out, as Dan said, if you don't know something about, you know, where your food came from, for example, then it's probably worse than you think. And when you start to actually find out those stories, you know, if you, if you read the reporting on civil eats, for example, or you'll be kind of repelled. Mm -hmm. So the twin forces I'm talking about are like, be drawn into your local food system, be drawn in by the deliciousness of what of growers that around you are doing and other producers, you know, small scale brewers, for example, allow yourself to kind of just be uh, taken in by that, but also make yourself a little more aware of what's going on out there. And, the, you know, it, I don't know what story is going to flip the switch for you it might be environmental. For me, it was largely Woodbury became an environmental project in a sense, because I was so concerned about the Chesapeake Bay. And it wasn't hard for me to connect the dots between 
the way that we were eating and what was going on with the Chesapeake. The large-scale chemical-dependent agriculture was really having a profound effect on this thing that's, uh, that is essentially you know, what people know about this region is that it surrounds the Chesapeake Bay. It can feel overwhelming because there's so much going on, but those two things, this force that just kind of pushes you away when you find out what's going on with industrial-scale food, and then the wonderful embracing qualities of generally what you find at a farmer's market or at a farm. I don't know if that's... Yeah, that's... Because it is hard to sort through it all. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love your identifying like um, a thing that kind of hooked you and drew you in. And it does kind of get under your skin, so to speak. I mean, once you start this journey, if you will, you don't want to go off the path. It's in you. You have to continue in that direction and to the point where people start calling you extreme or whatever. <laughs> but you identified that moment or the one thing you learned that really hooked you in. For me, I think it was when I learned some things about glyphosate Roundup, particularly that in, I think, 2011, it was patented as an antibiotic. And now there's 4 billion tons a year of glyphosate put on our food. That's processed and marketed in our food system and distributed all over the country. I think that's really, really alarming. And it's obvious that, you know, there are a lot of health problems in the public, particularly over the last year. And I'm just wondering, when are the powers that be going to start connecting those dots? I mean, they're connected for me in my mind. Well, they're connected for them, too. It's just not in their interest to go against those organizations. And and I, I think the twin... I think it's also twin force. I think the positive is you have to prove viability of these enterprises to succeed and grow and like make more of them. You know, there have to be way more farmers and way more service providers, these farmers, because it, it can't be just the farmer's market. You know, everything you're buying, you have to be able to have a good option, a quality option. And that's not the case. And that's going to require, you know, millions of more farmers, you know, massive, massive growth in the farms. But at the same time, you have to have a policy shift because the entire agricultural and economic market it's a policy market. I mean, it's a very distorted system of subsidies and incentives. And so it's it's like it's abundantly clear that it's very unhealthy to everybody, but the lobbying power of those big organizations is immense. So it, it will require grassroots legislative political change. It's happening at local levels. It just needs to filter up. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's going to be the last thing to change. I think you have to prove that it can work. And then that's going to enable the room to provide an alternative. Right now, when you say, well, let's do things differently, there's not a viable alternative to large-scale ag. It's not producing in the volumes and kind of scale to actually provide the resources that are needed. So you can't, even though it would be beneficial to just cut the system we have and hope it works out, that's not going to happen until there's a viable alternative that's ready to go. But if they wanted to cut all subsidy and all farm programs, that I, would, I think that would benefit the small sustainable farmer. So if they want to go full free market, you know, and actually be the Republicans that speak around free market competition, the, the small <laughs> local farmers selling great products direct to people, you know, of high value are, are the ones that are sustaining. And that was shown in COVID, you know, that the real resilience is in the mm -hmm. small distributed right. farms. So that, that I think gave people a window to what does or doesn't work. And the kind of confidence in the current mm -hmm. system was eroded. And I think that's the beginning and the end. It's going to be a while. It's not going to happen in, in a year or two. And does Stewart have any sort of policy or legislative arm to it? Or is that? No, nothing's outside the scope. So that's, do uh, I, I don't think you can. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can be engaged in regenerative agriculture without being aware and thoughtful about policy, because that is yeah. what creates the market. You know, that the, all the systems that exist in agriculture are shaped by policy. But changing that is hard. So we, we do have a team member we brought on who. He's a farmer himself and then worked on Capitol Hill. So he's a perfect 
mix of policy wonk and agriculturalists. We're working on some different changes on some programs. I think my most my best interest in policy is like, what are small changes to existing programs you can make to start to move things positively while working on the kind of much bigger legislative changes that are going to take time and probably be voted down for a long time. One program that we're focusing on, it's right. called the Agibon program. It allows uh, tax-free interest income on loans to small farms. Like, amazing idea. No one's ever really used it because the implementation and design of the program is not very flexible. So we're trialing a few of those loans to farmers in Washington state. It means you'll be able to bring down the cost of capital for farms, which is a huge positive impact. And it's taken a lot of backflips to make it work. No other lender would go through it. It's just not worth it. And then that example we're going to use to then go for legislative push of, you know, what are the small tweaks in that program that could be made so that every state has it available and it's used? And that would have a small, a big impact. So I, I think it's a lot of small, like regionalized state level, local changes that will push it. Um, but the big federal work is like, oof, that's, that's, that's yeah. hard to even, not yeah. even influence, even to have an idea what's, what's actually the conversation happening behind closed doors. That's a tough thing to break. Well, I think something you just said a few minutes ago is super interesting. You said right now there's no viable alternative to the current big agricultural industrial system. The irony of that is, and what you guys know, the alternative to it is, of course, small locally accessed food because the big thing is the opposite of all of this. You know, it's like, you know, the food has to travel. It's grown in mass. It's grown with chemicals. It's like the big scale of it is flips the whole idea of local, nutritious, community supported food on its head. So it's more than just looking for an alternative is actually dismantling. Yeah, I I agree. And I, when I say a viable alternative, I don't mean that that type of agriculture is better. I mean, just the sheer numbers and volumes yeah. of farms and production that needs to exist isn't is basically been displaced, right. has been undermined by government policy. You know, you wouldn't have had that many yes. farmers mm-hmm. go out of business and consolidation without subsidized financing and these other programs. So they kind of distort the market, squeeze small farms, and then they say small farms can't compete. It's like, well, obviously they can't compete if you've created right. a system to squeeze them. Yeah. Um, but in reality, yes, they're, they're, I'm 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 positive, even if it looks bleak. I mean. More than half the farmers we work with are not from non-farm backgrounds. You know, the idea that non-farmers are going into agriculture is like, that's a huge change. So there, it's happening, yeah. but yeah. it's, it's going to take a lot of effort. I think the place to start is, is a level growing field, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's where Stuart is so crucial is it's, it's not like farmers have ever been the ones to ask, at least the, the ones that I know have ever been asked for anything more than just the opportunity. And as Dan said, the opportunity for so long in this country has been distorted. And if we just leveled the growing field out uh, so that the farmers that we work with who grow the the nutritious food, grow the the tasty food, grow the food that doesn't impact the environment the way that we're doing it now does, it would be a start. And I think a lot of growers are not asking for much more than that. And Stuart is, you know, Stuart is a piece of that because Stuart comes along and says, you can access capital in a way that's really, that's suited to you, the way that you know, big farms have had capital programs that are that are suited to them. That's a huge step in the right direction. Do you guys have any uh, favorite stories or one particular like steward success story that you can share with us? I mean, I, I can go for a long time on that. The, the one that I, one of my favorites is a farm called Fisheye Farms. It was one of the first farms we funded in June 2017. They were an urban farm in Detroit. They were farming on a side lot of a tenth of an acre 
uh, next to the farmer's uncle who owned a dry cleaner. So literally like some excess land they found next to their uncle's dry cleaning business, started farming, sold $10,000 worth of product off of that 10 little tiny tenth of an acre. Um, but they want, then wanted to buy more land. And in Detroit, there is land everywhere, but most of it's owned by the Detroit Land Bank. And the land bank was unwilling to sell them an acre of land, even though they have 10,000 acres of vacant land because they're a farmer. And I don't know why, but we came in, provided the funding that the city was comfortable to sell it to them, sold them uh, 18 lots, so about an acre and a half. And they've now gone from you know 10,000 revenue to 120,000 in three years. They've transformed a neighborhood by taking you know two acres of abandoned land and restoring it and building a local farm stand. During COVID, they switched from restaurants and local farm stand to 100% direct local sales, started selling other farms product, you know, became a weekly pickup at the market at, at their own farm stand. So they're just the kind of pillars to a community in a food desert, providing fresh food, now even growing green tomatoes for local black residents and even adjusting their products even to suit the, the local communities and proving viability. I mean, 120,000, 10 times revenue growth and three years is massive for any enterprise. And I think that's what I've seen. The demand is incredible for these products, but they can't get their production up. You know, they just don't have the equipment or labor to do it. But if they can get their production up, they can place it, they can sell it. And so the scene is kind of small and inefficient businesses, but it's not for lack of demand. It's that mm -hmm. without capital, you know, you can only take it so far. And that was on a loan that was $100,000, which is not a large loan in the scale of any financing. Um, and that fundamentally transformed, you know, a neighborhood and their opportunity. And it probably put them a decade ahead of where they would have had to be, you know, had they grown on cash flow year over year over year. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, Spike, what's your, you're on the kind of buying from farms, engaging farmers, but yeah. who's the farm story of someone you, you've been buying from that you love? Well, Dan knows my favorite story and uh, Stuart is, is intrinsic to his success. It's an Amish farmer in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, who I'd been working with for years. And he's got a, a family farm that, that grows any number of products, but a really important part of his farm is the dairy cows that he has on grass, old varieties of brown Swiss and Jersey and Guernsey cows. And he was selling milk like almost all of his neighbors to local processors, co-ops and fluid milk bottlers. And I won't go into the backstory on the global milk crisis, but he was like many of his neighbors uh, was being squeezed on price uh, because the prices were constantly going down and eventually lost his ability to sell milk to his local co-op. There was just too much of it and, and there, it was too cheap. And so through St Steward provided first a loan to help him bring fluid milk processing onto his own farm. And just the way that this Amish farmer's life and his, you know, his ability to farm kind of intersected with Steward's ability to bring, you know, what is a, really a cutting edge platform to his service was to me mind blowing. Uh, this is a guy that doesn't even have a phone in his house reaching him. I'm kind of waiting for a call because he has a phone in his barn. And, and when you uh, when he calls, you need to pick it up because otherwise he's, he's other, he, you won't get to talk to him again for a couple of days. But that's not even the best part of it. The best part of it was that he's gotten this this processing equipment in place and it's ready to roll. And he's ready to start processing his own milk for the first time ever. And he can't navigate the regulatory system where that would allow him to get his grade A license. 
And I felt powerless to help. And the guy that Dan referenced earlier stepped in with his experience uh, in government and his, his, his ability to just kind of navigate government agencies. And through a process that I'm still a little bit flabbergasted by, he got the right inspectors to, to show up at the farm and got the inspections to happen. And I happened to be there for the last one. And the proudest moment for me was when the, the inspector literally just wrote down this farmer's approval number on a slip of paper. <laughs> I was like, that's it. And he's like, that's it. And I just, I just held the, the slip of paper up and took a picture of it and sent it to the team because, you know, not only the improvements to the farm that are going to allow Omer to continue to milk cows, um, which is, as I said, an, a crucial part of how he, he supports himself and his family, but getting that final approval for him to do that, which I, I didn't know how it was going to happen. Months went by. And I would check in and I would say, like, what's going on? And he would be like, well, it might be next month. And Stewart and, you know, the team there got it to happen. And I don't know what the, the alternative for me is like that it, it doesn't happen and that, you know, we lose this really great farm and this great product. So wow, that to me was like I was and that I happened to be there. I, I was really so I, I didn't get it to happen, but that I was there and I it, it it happened while I was there and I could send that picture of that, just that handwritten, you know, he can now sell milk, his milk anywhere in the country because he has that inspection. Wow. And, you know, our focus at Steward, as Dan has made clear, is like not only the growing in the products, but getting it to market, connecting with those markets. And this, this is a great example of value add because, you know, Omer had milk in a tank, but, but nowhere to sell oh it. Oh my gosh. And now he can. And, and what do you do with his milk? Recently, um, I, it's been butter for me and cheese mm -hmm. as he gets it into bottles. We're now ready to start. I've been working on the label with him so that we can get the label approved and get it out there. Um, we'll use it. Uh, I can't wait to use it in our coffee shop because yeah. milk from grass fed cows is, you know, if you love your macchiato, your cappuccino, your latte, that this milk is it's transformative. And then I hope to get it. I'm equally excited to get it in front of other chefs and baristas that I know. And, and I think it's just great to work with. And that's, you know, it's one of the, yeah. he has a, a pasteurizer that, that he bought uh, with a steward loan, that's a separator, a pasteurizer. Uh, and now he has bottling, bottling equipment. Yeah. I guess it's really complicated for you in the restaurant business to get into raw milk products. I guess that's just inaccessible, huh? I think the more accurate word would be illegal. <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess for a restaurant, there are, you're just not trying. There, hard are, there are legal like, ways for, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I bumped up against, and I, I agree with Dan that a lot of those, you know, it's not just the, on the finance side, it's, you know, a lot of these laws are in place, I think for the benefit of larger operations. And, mm -hmm. you know, it seems to me that, that wherever the, the, the kind of industrial food system can find a way to, to put a little uh, barrier in front of smaller producers, they'll do it. Yeah. And I think some of the laws around raw milk and other, other processing, you know, some of the laws we have around things like E. coli, which, which never happens on a small farm, mm -hmm. you know, it, a lot of like E. coli and beef is, is, has been exclusively the, you know, the domain of giant producers who have these processes that kind of lead to that consequence. Yeah. That's, I mean, you guys know that, but I'm, for the benefit of our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> well, we have, we're a part of a cow share in Virginia, actually, because we can't yeah. do it in Maryland or DC, but, but it's been a journey. Life changing. Yeah. It, it's been quite the process. It's like drinking well, we, a milkshake. I have, I, do I have the cow share for you guys? If you are into raw and uh, we visited a farm I, with, a, with a group from Stewart uh, a few weeks ago, and I saw, I mean, I saw regenerative at its, at its, its far yeah. end of the rain down south of Charlottesville. We, I can send you the, it's, it's, it's another world. That's amazing. Yeah, we need to do a farmer exchange. I have people over here on this side of the city that you need to know, or if you don't already. That would be great. 
Yeah, always. I have a suggestion for your restaurant. I do too. <laughs> Ice cream. Okay, that's uh, nice. I was going to say kefir. <laughs> have you discovered kefir as a... Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was part of... Omer's, the, the farmer I was talking about is, is obsessed with that. Yeah. Um, as soon as we get the milk going, I think that is something we're going to explore. We and our family are also obsessed with it. <laughs> it's amazing. I feel like this whole thing has been a pitch. You don't need to pitch us. But I do want to hear to someone who might be listening to this and thinking about, oh, I'd love to invest in these projects. How does that work? What is that like? And then what do they get a return on their investment? Tell us, talk us through that. The journey of the lender. Sure. Yes. So they go to the platform, gosteward.com. They can either fund a loan to a specific farm. So, you know, this Amish farmer in Pennsylvania just borrowed funds to finish out those final bottling costs and inspection costs and all the bureaucracy to get this market. So people are able to lend him money over a five-year term with an 8% interest rate, you know, paid down monthly. So you can pick a specific farm fund them, you know, earn reasonable returns, but also see the tangible benefit of, you know, the story of what your money's actually doing, not in some theoretical way, but the reality of that actual business. Or they can lend money to a, a pool of diversified farm loans where it's spread across a network of regenerative farms. They can read about all the individual farms, but they don't have to make the decision about which farm it is. We find some people, you know, love the farm narratives. A lot of times CSA customers become big anchor funders of deals. I mean, what, what better way to advance that CSA than provide that financing? Oftentimes, I find the, the CSA customers would like to fund the farm, but what's the legal structure? Kind of how do they formalize it? Like, it's just a difficult situation. So oftentimes, it, it's really just helping to drive relationships that already exist, but just kind of give a platform and infrastructure and a professionalization to make it work. Um, but we have people funding farms, you know, all across the country. It's not you know, it's not necessarily geographic. People have interests based on many different things. Some people love aquaculture. Some people love livestock. Uh, some people won't fund livestock. You know, it just depends on each person. And I think that's the goal that the narrative across all the farms is aligned. Their kind of practices are all aligned. But depending on what is of interest to you, you know, you can support different businesses and then you can visit the farms and engage with them. And I think that's what I, I get most excited about. Most people that fund farms. You know, they're they're appreciative of the ability to do it. You know, they're just excited to have that next level of engagement. And I think that's where most people are who are who are at least thinking about how do I put my money into something that aligns with my values. There are incredible amount of options that have no values at all, and we're never going to compete in that market. Right. But in the market of let me take five or ten percent of what I have and start to put it towards kind of tangible impact investments, and not impact from like some general sense of public companies, but you know that specific business that now can grow, you know, see improvements in their, in their underlying farm business, but also have uh, independence, you know, have the ability to operate as with dairy farmer, you know, without relying on some third party that defines price and squeezes your business. And so that kind of resilience around alternative funding from people who care about who you are to then support the farm. And then on the way back, actually pay people and compensate for them. You know, that's the flow of funds. That's a cycle. But we do think people should earn a reasonable return six to eight percent the average the farms sometimes think those interest rates are high but it's like you're talking about cheap food people don't think of cheap money as the other side of that equation and the mass subsidy of mm -hmm. financing at low interest rates is what creates big ag because it lets it operate at a cost that's below what anyone would would lend it to and it also means that if if you don't fit in that market you're on your own and so you're kind of forcing the farmer with the carrot 
that you're going to get all this cheap money if you just do these things and follow these practices and go this way. Mm. If you're going to be outside that, that is a challenge. And that's the farmers we're working with. I mean, they're operating on whatever they have. Sometimes it's very little. Sometimes they luckily have some savings or capital. But what they can do with financing is really amazing. It's just really transformative for relatively small amounts of you know, loans of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which are kind of ignored in the American financial system, but can have like a fundamental impact on, on a, on a whole community. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens if they like, do you ever have farmers fail and they can't pay it back? How does that work? We, we have not had it yet. Um, but even one current example, we have a farm that needs an additional working capital loan mid season, like most farms, you know, managing right. operational capital is very hard, particularly pre-harvest. And so that's when we're, we're stepping in to provide more funding to a farmer to help them continue their growth in a circumstance where they're running tight on, on cash flow as they have lots of chickens out that they're ready to sell and lots of things to harvest. Our general view is, you know, we have that farmer I mentioned and a network of, of other ag experts who stay in touch with the farm, who can kind of build that trusting relationship with the farmer around how's the business going, what challenges are you seeing, where can we help improve things and then work with them to resolve that the issue. You know, did they lose a market? Did they lose a customer? Were they just too tight on, on financing? If it came down to a farmer wanting to leave and not being able to farm, then we would want to find a replacement farmer to step in, take over the operation. There are a lot of farmers out there that would love to step into a functioning farm as opposed to having to do it all themselves, which is, is backbreaking work. But we're try we try to be as positive as possible. But we also want to make sure funders are protected. But we're communicative to our capital base that this is the farm, this yeah. is the reality, here's a challenge you're seeing. And so I think it's a really just the adverse lender relationship is often when it's just like an institution who's got no flexibility and not interested mm -hmm. in anything other than recovery of funds. But if you consider yourself actually mm -hmm. invested in the success of that enterprise, hoping for them to do well, and you can provide some flexibility, there's often an easy resolution. Most of the times I find the problem with these farmers is short-term cash flow. You know, they just, they're running tight always, and there's variability in their business. But the end demand is immense. And if they're good farmers, they'll get their production where it needs to be. So I, I think a lot of issues are created around short-term cash flow that, that really aren't longer-term issues, but are made into longer-term issues because banks will be flexible or provide additional capital. And then you go down the road of being cut off for credit, and, and that's the end of that. So we, we try to be as accommodating as possible while still recognizing this is a loan. The goal is for it to be repaid, and we'd rather help them grow their way out of it or kind of solve a problem and repay it than seize assets and try to get repaid that way, which is never a positive for, for anybody. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like a very human approach. Yeah. <laughs> Alternatively on the farmer side, cause we do have a mix in our listener audience. If there's, if there are farmers listening or people who want to get into farming listening, how do they get a loan from you? I mean, the, the short answer is go to gosteward.com for growers. It's an amazing platform. And for a lot of growers, the uh, application process starts there. Uh, one of the great things I recognized very early on in my work with Steward is there's an incredible team that is making it happen for farmers. And gosteward.com is the best place to start. I, I've also heard, you know, in the conversations we have at Steward, Steward is very much about helping farmers get to where they can get. For folks that are just starting out, it might not yeah. be the best place to start. Steward, the vetting process that I've seen kind of happens in two areas. It happens on the agricultural side, and they have incredibly knowledgeable people, especially the, the ag lead that Dan was talking about. It's not that he needs to have, you know, what a small-scale farm does explained to him. He actually knows that inside and out. 
he's going to understand where your farm sits in regard to what it's doing, what it's capable of, maybe the improvements that need to be made, whether or not the use of the capital that's being discussed is the best use, or it's going to get the farm to uh, profitability um, or improve its prospects. And then there's the financial due diligence that, that happens as well. So the experience that I've seen at Stewart is that they're they're working with farmers that have a, a little bit of a track record that have you know kind of a product already in the marketplace. And the question for them is like, how do we get, you know, how do we achieve kind of uh, financial sustainability, viability, and how do we grow to kind of help, yeah. you know, to ensure that. But uh, one of the cool things for me is, you know, I've been able to have these conversations with farmers for years now about like buying their products. But, you know, by definition, that was a little bit limited to the, the farms here, um, you know, in kind of the Chesapeake watershed. And if I traveled or if I was a little bit beyond, or obviously I can only buy so much, but now I can have a conversation with any farmer anywhere about, you know, this, the other side of this equation, as we've been talking about, which is like, there's this really great way for you to get capital support for your farm and it's called steward and I'd love to connect you. So I was, you know, I've been limited in the past because we could only buy so much and we were only buying really from farms in this in our, our neck of the woods. But now that conversation is, you know, with everyone that I meet essentially, because I think it's, it's such a great, you know, tool to have in their toolkit. Yes. I feel the same way. I'm so excited. Uh, what does the good dirt mean to you? I think in this moment, I think the good dirt in the literal sense is something we need to be focused on. And I would say, you know, if you go back to the 1930s, soil was something that people in this country, that the U.S. government took seriously as as a precious resource. And I think we've lost sight of what soil as the basis for agriculture should mean in the in connections with the way that we eat. And I think what so great about regenerative ag and and what's so great about the farmers that I work with and who I talk to and I, who I learn from every day is that by the work that they're doing, they are helping restore soil itself because great farming leads to more soil. The loss of topsoil, the loss, you know, erosion and sedimentation in our agricultural system is a constant issue. And we're, we've, we continue to lose millions of pounds of soil every year. The restoration of soil and soil fertility, two crucial, you know, separate but interlocked things is what I think of when you, when you mentioned good dirt, I think of the actual dirt. And I think of especially the good dirt, uh, the soil that's, it, that's high in, in organic matter that is fully alive because soil, alive, healthy soil has an, an amazing microbiome that's crucial to whatever we're growing in it. That's what I think of. I think that good dirt is truly great, alive soil that's the basis for every, every good thing that we eat. Yeah, playing on what Spike said, I mean, I think of it in, in the literal sense of, you know, what, when you see a piece of land that is restored and is vibrant and a vibrant ecosystem, there's just something so tangible about that. I think the reference to what it's like at a farmer's market and the smell, the taste, like there's just the physical manifestation of that. And I think that is the same around humans and soil and land. I think I was reading somewhere too that if even when you smell soil, it's calming, similar to the way it is to smell a parent when you're a baby. I mean, it's literally built within humans to be attracted and comforted by it. And so I think, you know, that's the broader regenerative agriculture framework of how do you create healthy land and ecosystems and soil and all of that blended. And then in reality, I'm learning every day about soil. And I just spoke to someone about biochar for an hour yesterday. And our farmer team's always just talking about so, so the, the, just the complexity of it, too, I think is not well understood broadly and that there's more soil than just tilled ground soil. OK, so thank you guys so much for coming on. Today. Yeah. This has been so awesome. I can't wait to see what all Stewart continues to do. 
I'm going to invest. I'm really excited. I hope many of our listeners out there are rushing to look you up right now. Ghoststeward.com, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. All right. Good to be with you. I really appreciate these guys coming on and being with us today and really shedding a lot of light on regenerative agriculture and and what it is and what it means and what we can do to help it grow. Yeah, I love actionable action steps. (laughs) And as someone who, you know, like I said, I'm not quite there yet as far as having extra cash to invest in the stock market. That's something as a young adult I'm working towards, but it's so exciting to be able to have this option of this kind of investment. That's like, you know, you get returns and you're supporting things that matter and that can really change the world. That's so exciting to me. And really, what could be more fundamental than our food and investing in something that will ensure healthy, safe, and clean food for the future? Yeah. And supporting those superheroes that are leading the way for us. Yeah, out there doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, a reminder of the things we have coming up real quick. We've got our Slow Living Retreat, virtual retreat in December. Check out our website for more details on that. If you aren't already following us on Instagram, follow us at We Are Lady Farmer and keep your eyes peeled for the opening of the Almanac, which is our online membership community. It's a warm, lovely community spot for lady farmers all over the place to connect and share inspiration, ideas, stories, recipes, all of those good things. We really have a lot of fun in there. Yeah, and photos. Yeah. we will see you guys next week on the good dirt thank you so much for staying with us we really appreciate the support have a great week everybody goodbye you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well We're so excited to offer the Almanac. It's our private, slow-living community network where we share workshops, activities, articles, essays, recipes, and so much more that align with our community's sustainable, slow, seasonal way of living. As a member, you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings. Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow-living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac or three months free if you sign up for an entire year. 
That's ladyfarmer.com community.